according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again. It's been a while since we've been here, but we are looking at Proverbs 21. And I remember we left off. You've been on the edge of your seats now since... uh, we were last here. We have a verse in verse 16. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. And there are so many puzzles in this verse, and it's really just one lonely verse sitting out here in, uh, in Proverbs 21, and yet I think it connects to so many other passages of Scripture. And with respect to the assembly of the dead, the kahal of the Raphaim, boy, the vocabulary just grabs you and says, wait a minute, there's, there's something here. You've got to pay attention to this. And so you realize, and I think the, um, and it comes on the heels of verse 15 where we read, the exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but it is terror to the workers of iniquity. And so this contrast between the saved and the lost, the redeemed and the, and the condemned, um, in, in the full scope of the angelic conflict uh, clearly has to be in view. And uh, so when we look at verses 15 and 16 together and we see this congregation of the dead, the assembly of the dead, the church of the, of the, uh, the dead, and it's not even a normal word for dead. So what are we talking about? And I think it grabs our attention, grabs my attention anyway, particularly because of our place in Genesis where we're uh, starting a Genesis series, and in Genesis, particularly chapter six, when you're dealing with the fallen angels and the uh, and the rise of the Nephilim, the origin, the source of the Nephilim, and all of the angelic conflict that we go through there, uh, to to be gearing up in a Genesis series, and then to hit a verse like this in Proverbs that I had no clue was even in here until I'd never seen these verses before until we got to this chapter and got to this point of our study. So. I want to make sure we're solid on it, and I'll take today to, to work our way through the giants and the, the, the Nephilim and the Rephaim and the, and the fallen ones and all the, the things that go into this. And, uh, and like I say, you've been waiting for it for three weeks since we were off for most of the second half of December there. Uh, but it is a new year, it is a new uh, opportunity, and I want to take the time to, to deal with it here today. So uh, hopefully we'll get through it in one session and then we'll move on uh, and uh, get through the rest of this chapter here in short order. My goal is for 2021, by the way, I want to cover chapters 22, 23, 24 if we can, but we still have half of 21 <laughs> to, before we even get to 22. So anyway, we'll see um, because the intention is to have this year to kind of put things together and then we have our Through the Bible year in 2022. So Wherever we get to in Proverbs, that's where it's going to sit for a one-year hiatus as we, uh, we're going to suspend Proverbs during our Through the Bible year. So just stay tuned for that as well. All right, well, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. This morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father in His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together, calling upon your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding, to shape and direct our thinking, our discussion, our study, all things on this day as we study to show ourselves approved. 
Thank you for being faithful, Father. Thank you for the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and the blessing we have in the church age to have the the permanent indwelling whereby, Father, we can study, we can learn, we can grow. These provisions are, are beyond anything that we could ask or think. And so we just thank you for being faithful. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs 16, uh, 21.16. Proverbs 21.16. And the slide that we got to... All right, Proverbs 21.16. Let's just put up 15 and 16 both here. The exercise of justice is, a joy, is joy for the righteous, but is terror to the workers of iniquity. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. And so this is where we ended at the end of, uh, of last year. Um, I forget even what Wednesday it was, because we had a couple of Wednesdays off before the holidays uh, and before my vacation. But anyway, uh, we see this contrast, the contrast between the saved and the lost. Uh, the joy for the righteous. Remember, the only way we can become righteous, we have no righteousness in ourselves. The only way to become righteous is to receive God's righteousness, to be born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true in the New Testament, true in the Old Testament. They were looking forward to the coming of Messiah and in the anticipation of the coming one, that's their, that's their faith in Christ. Like we have faith in the Christ who came, they had their faith in the Christ who was coming. And so by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you must be born again, and at that point you receive God's righteousness and uh, the, the joys and blessings that we have to have a righteousness that's not of our own. And so at that point, when we see righteousness exercised, when we see righteousness done, when we see it lived out, and it, and it's, it has a, a practical application in our daily life, and we see it in our politics, we see it in our culture, we see it in our workplace, we see it in our families, we see it, it's not just justice as a concept, as an abstract concept, it's justice exercised, that we see it done, it's working, it's, it's, uh, it's functional in culture. We love that. We love it when there's righteousness in culture. And when there's unrighteousness in culture, we recoil, we, because we're, we're beings of righteousness now. So when we see uh, lies upheld, when we see unrighteousness glorified, when we see wickedness reign, that's grating to our new nature in Christ. Well, <clears throat> just the opposite for the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, for the workers of iniquity, for the brood of vipers, as, as Jesus calls them, for the, uh, the lost of this age that are walking according to the prince of the power of this age. For them, it's just the opposite. Because when they see God's righteousness, they recoil. When they see God's righteousness, it is a reminder for them that they are unrighteous, that there are standards, that there is judgment, and that they will face judgment on judgment day. Every knee will bend, every tongue will confess. And so true divine justice, to have it worked out in life, is, uh, is horrible to the unbeliever. This is why they call good evil and evil good. This is why they don't come to the light. This is why they, uh, they shun the light and they crave the darkness because their deeds are evil. And, uh, and uh, this is the, the world in which we live. And it's curious to me too because even them in their darkness, this crowd I'm talking about, I don't even know what's the, the world of the unbeliever, they will still use terms like good and evil. They will still use terms like right and wrong. They will still use expressions. Uh, of course they have everything back, backwards and upside down. Uh, but but we will be called evil. We will be called wrong. We will be called, our biblical standards will be called uh, evil 
by the crowd that, that denies that there is a God, okay, to, uh, to even give such terms. So this is the world that we live in, and we're seeing it here. So it goes beyond that then from verse 15 to verse 16. And the, and the things that cause unbelievers to recoil in terror is, is because despite the fact that they're unsaved, they're still human beings that are created in the image and likeness of God. And so they have an eternal soul. They have a facet of that soul that is the facet of conscience. And the facet of conscience in the image of God identifies that there is an absolute standard of righteousness whether they care to admit it or not. That there is a God whether they care to admit it or not. And so the fool in his heart that denies that there is a God is, uh, is dealing with these things. And it's terrifying to them. Absolutely terrified that they are accountable to the God they're pretending does not exist. All right, which gets us then to verse 16. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. Will rest in the assembly of the Rephaim. And there's a footnote here, we've got to deal with a footnote, and, uh, and we'll be tearing apart the vocabulary on this. In the assembly of the dead, it says literally the departed spirits. Um, it's a curious footnote to me because of the, the difficulty that the New American Standard has, that other Bibles have, in dealing with Rephaim. Uh, literally, departed spirits, okay, maybe, uh, but that's not how you literally take Rephaim in other passages, so what are you doing here? Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, but these are the Rephaim, and, and we're going to learn a Hebrew word today, if you haven't already learned it, Rephaim. And I'll spell it out for you and we're going to talk about it. And in some ways it's better to not translate a word but just leave it as a Hebrew word and deal with it like that. And instead of trying to put a, a, an English term on it, Rephaim isn't even a, a, a translation, it's just a transliteration. So we'll, uh, we'll handle it like that. Alright, so this is then, if I have the right slide, point 13, because under point 12 we were dealing with the exercise of justice. This is when God's essence is reflected in public life. It is a joy for believers and a terror to those still under eternal condemnation. Right, all right, well that gets us now to point 13. Fallen humanity is destined to the fiery destruction prepared for fallen angelity. Fallen humanity is destined to the fiery destruction prepared for fallen angelity. And this is almost a tautology. It almost goes without saying. It almost just, well, duh, um, unbelievers go to hell. All right? I get that. But there's so much more to that because the rest that they have, that they will have when they die and go to hell, is actually a rest that they presently engage in here and now. It's like the rest that we're to engage in here and now. We have a rest. It's called faith rest. We, we rest as the Father rested from His works. We rest from our works. We have a rest. There remains a rest for the people of God. I believe this passage is telling us there is a rest for the people of Satan. There is a rest for the brood of vipers. And it's not just going to hell when they die, but it's the rest that they have here and now when they, uh, when they rest in the, the realms of darkness that they're walking in. It's, uh, it's the worldview, it's the mindset that, that, that resonates with their corrupt nature. And so they, they, they cling to it fervently. And even if, even if somebody with truth points out, hey, this is true, this is a lie, why are you embracing the lie? Because they crave it, they need it, they, they function in that realm. 
It's like a fish in water or birds in the air. It's like it's a, it's a realm that's suitable to this corrupted nature, this corrupted cosmos world. So I want to pay attention to these things here. And when we see the, uh, and I'll give you the vocabulary on all this, the, the realm of the dead, the assembly of the dead, uh, the kahal is the term that applies to like the church. It's translated ecclesia frequently in the Septuagint. It's an assembly, it's a gathering, it's, a, it's, um, it's not just a random mob, but it's, uh, it's a called forth body like the congregation of the sons of Israel. This is just the congregation of the, uh, of the, the dead, the congregation of the Rephaim. And uh, this becomes important. Now, as we recognize it, let's understand according to, get my Bible back up here, Matthew twenty five forty one, God did not create hell for humans. When you're talking about the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25, and this is a judgment that will take place when, at the second advent when Jesus returns to the earth and he takes his seat on the throne of David. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to have judgment over the, the Jewish people. He has a wilderness judgment for all Israel. And then he leads them into Jerusalem. And, and once he's seated in Jerusalem on the throne, then the Gentiles are brought to him for their judgment. And the Gentiles are separated left and right, sheep and goats. And in this sheep and goat judgment, it's the righteous and the unrighteous again. That's the distinction, whether they're saved or they're lost. And so saying to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, accursed ones. And this is the legitimate biblical expression of being accursed, of being damned. A lot of times we use that as a vulgarity or a, a profanity, but it's, it references those that are not blessed for eternal life for Jesus Christ, but those that are accursed for eternal separation in the lake of fire. And so the righteous are blessed. That's uh, a few verses earlier. And uh, he says to the righteous, as we see here in verse 37, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And and so forth. So they're the righteous there. And in contrast to the righteous now is the accursed ones. He says to those on his left, depart from me accursed ones into the eternal fire. And it doesn't say which was prepared for Adam when he fell into sin. It was prepared for humanity when Adam and Eve failed in the Garden of Eden. And so the lost estate of, of sin was then generated. It doesn't say that. The realm of the lake of fire, the realm of hell, the, the concept of a, of a spatial location that's going to be permanently separated from God's glory and, and essence, it was designed for Satan. It was designed as a consequence of the angelic fall, not the human fall. So it's called the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Alright, so it's, it's almost as if God... Uh, uh, is, is repurposing or he's reusing, he's taking advantage of something that's already in place. Uh, you know, he didn't have to create a sep separate realm for humanity because he already had this realm prepared for Satan and the angels. There's already a place that's going to be separated from God's glory for all eternity. And once people, once it's full, once everyone is in there that's going in there, then it's sealed off and closed and no one else will ever go in there again. No one will ever come out of there, of course. And, uh, and it will be sealed off. I, I don't believe we'll even view it from heaven for all eternity. I believe that once uh, the, the great white throne judgment is complete and everybody is thrown in there that's going in there, 
then that door is closed and it just exists in a complete separation forever. And, and the, the inhabitants there are awake, eternal, conscious torment is what it's called. And that torment is their rest, is their assembly, is their, what this verse calls, will rest in the assembly of the dead. That is their rest. That is their repose. That is their final um, glory. Can I use that word? It's their final rest as God designed a realm suitable for their nature. Okay? It's like the, the fish is suitable, the, the, the water is suitable for the fish. It's like, uh, of course, heaven is suitable for us. God, God creates the realms that are suitable for the beings that are going to occupy those realms. All right. So this is not designed for humanity. It's designed for fallen angelity, but fallen humanity likewise is conformable to this destiny. And so since it's already in place, God doesn't have to create a separate one, you know, a, a, a lake of fire for the angels and a lake of fire for the humans. The lake of fire that's, that's uh, adequate for the angelic habitation, the fallen angelic habitation is likewise adequate. It is appropriate. It is suitable for the fallen human habitation. It is suitable. And, uh, and those issues there. And I hope this makes sense. If you have any questions, let me know. We can answer those. Uh, my childhood pastor, Ken Jensen, this, this became actually a part of his evangelism technique um, that he would talk to unbelievers and uh, one of the things he would say to them is, well, you know, you don't even want to go, you don't want to go to heaven when you die. Why would you want to go to heaven when you die? You know, and, uh, and you just say, you know, heaven is a place of, of righteousness and glory and there's nothing but Christians there. And, and, you know, you hate Christians, you hate God's word, you hate uh, God's righteousness. No, you want to go to hell. That's, that's the place that's suitable to your nature. And, you know, when, you, when you're comfortable enough to tell an unbeliever that he's going to hell and that he wants to go to hell and that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's true, it's all absolutely true. And uh, maybe it's uh, so blunt enough that it's going to wake somebody up to say, wow, I am going to hell. What is that? Well, what is this nature that I have that's, that's corrupt, that's evil, that's, that uh, would have a miserable time in heaven? Do you know how awful they'd have it in heaven to be unrighteous, surrounded by God's righteousness? Assuming they could survive it, of course. I think they'd be obliterated like a, you know, a nuclear furnace or something. All right. So this is what we're dealing with. And it's not only the eternal destiny, but I think it's the present rest that they engage in as well in time. And we'll talk about that and, uh, and some of those issues there. The assembly of the dead. This is the puzzle that we're going to unravel. As it's called here, the Kahal Raphaim. Kahal Raphaim. In the Septuagint, of course the Septuagint is the translation from Hebrew into Greek which is older than, than our New Testament, it's older, it preceded Christ. It goes back to the 2nd and 3rd centuries B.C. But it's called the synagogue. The Sunagoge Giganton. Sunagoge Giganton. The synagogue of the giants. And when you have Giga, Giganton here, we have the, uh, the giants. And so the, in the Septuagint translation anyway, they, uh, they made uh, an interpretive decision as it relates to this Raphaim that we have to make. We have to come to these Raphaim and we have to understand what are the Raphaim and do they have bodies, do they not have bodies? Are they physical corporal beings? Are they in, in physical, uh, intangible spirit beings? Disembodied spirits? What are these Raphaim? 
that, uh, that we want to understand from the Old Testament perspective. But it's called the Assembly of the Dead, the Kahel Raphaim. In the Septuagint Greek it's the Synagoge Gaganton, the Synagogue of the Giants. And I like that phrase as well. So what is the synagogue? You think about the synagogue of Satan that, that uh, is spoken of in the book of Revelation and there's other components that we have in other parts of the Bible. So point B then, Raphaim studies. And I want to spend today on Raphaim studies. In fact, my purpose today is to get us through this slide. <laughs> All right? And uh, get through this slide and deal with it. Anytime you're going to study Raphaim, you realize that there's really two broad uh, realms that the, the term Raphaim falls into. Uh, half the time it's talking about physical beings, in which case we think they might be, they're probably human, but they're quite tall. <laughs> and so we wonder, are they exactly human? We're not clear. And when we have the totality of all those passages, we start to think, well, wait a minute, these Raphaim appear to be giants. These Raphaim appeared to make uh, Israel look like grasshoppers in their sight. And uh, if, if you appear to be a grasshopper in somebody else's sight, uh, then uh, that means you're pretty small and they're pretty big and something else uh, seems to be going on here. So Raphaim studies, they're based upon, uh, we have divisions into two groups. We have physical and, and spiritual. We have tangible material and intangible spiritual beings that, were, that are in view. Uh, the physical beings that walk upon this earth tend to be great size, and then the intangible beings, uh, they tend to be in hell, they tend to be in Sheol, they tend to be in the abyss, or they tend to be, uh, if, if they are roaming the earth, they're in an unsettled kind of roaming because they're, uh, they're looking for a body to inhabit, or there's some other kind of unsettled thing that's going on uh, before they get sent back to Sheol again. And so these are the things that we want to see. I believe I shared with you last time, in fact I know I did, uh, we looked at the Raphaim word studies. Let me bring those back up again just so that you can see them. The um, word studies here. Bible word study, here we go. And so if I do Raphaim, When I have a choice of two different ones to do. I'm going to do both of them. Here's your first one. Raphaim. And then let me make a second one over here. But I'm going to change from Raphaim 1 to Raphaim 2. So anytime you're doing a word study and you spot, wait a minute, there's more than one. Okay, there's a one, there's a two, sometimes you'll find a three. Um, you're talking about a Hebrew word that probably comes from more than one root that may actually be two separate words, but they appear to be the same word. And so what Logos has done and what other, um, before computers even, what other dictionaries have done, like the BDAG lexicon, the BDAG lexicon went ahead and took uh, uh, Raphaim and just counted it as if it's two different words. Okay. And, and this happens fairly commonly with different Hebrew uh, terms that come from different roots that appear similar but are not exactly alike. And so we have Raphaim 1 and Raphaim 2. And Raphaim 1 is uh, what gets translated as dead spirits or shades or ghosts. Raphaim 2 is uh, what gets rendered as either Raphaim or 
uh, giants. As we see the color wheel here, sometimes it's rendered as giants. Like in 1 Chronicles 20 and verse 4. So these are physical beings. Anyway, two different things. And, and you'll notice this, by the way, you'll also notice this in your lexicons. If you look up in, in the Strong's uh, Concordance, or you look up in BDAG, or you look up in whatever your favorite Hebrew lexicon is, and you may find right there, there's a Roman numeral 2. And you say, wait a minute, Roman numeral 2? So scroll up, go take a look at it and see where is Roman numeral 1. Oh, there it is. Roman numeral 1, Raphaim. Shades or ghosts. Roman numeral 2, Raphaim. Hmm, it's a proper noun for an old race of giants. Wow, but it's the same word, okay? Raphaim. So which Raphaim are we talking about as we, as we work our way through this? So let's take a look at these verses and you'll see what we're dealing with. Genesis 14, 5. And I think uh, what first alerted me to this, this is years and years ago, right? Before... Uh, Proverbs was life of Christ before life of Christ was life of David, if you might recall that. This is going back to the 90s, 1990s, and um, maybe the early 2000s when we were doing life of David. In the life of David, of course, we have a giant. We have Goliath. And in studying Goliath, in studying the giants, in studying the clans, the, we, we went through the vocabulary to include Rephaim, to include Nephilim, to include Anakim, uh, to include some Ammonite and Moabite terms like emim and zanzumim and some other expressions because they're all essential, locked into these huge physical beings that look like humans, but they make humans look small. And so where do they come from? Well, the Bible tells us where they come from because they're not entirely human. The Bible tells us where they come from. All right, so Genesis 14.5 is our first use of Raphaim. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim. And where did they defeat them? In this place called Ashtaroth Karnaim. And there's more studies to be done with that, but we'll let that go for this morning. And also notice the Zuzim, keep that in mind, the Zuzim in Ham and the Emim in Shava Kiriathim. So there's three different people groups here. And, the, and these, are, these are in the early centuries after the flood. This is between Noah and Abraham that this happens here. Um, it's actually in Abraham's day that this is happening here because Abraham has to go rescue Lot from, from this king. But in these centuries after the flood and we have these giants and Keterleomer wages war uh, on, these, uh, on these giant clans. Rephaim, Zuzim, and Emim. Also, the Horites in Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Now, we, we know about the Horites from other studies and, and connected to the Edomites and, and things there. So then they turned back and came to end Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and the Amorites who lived in Hazanon Tamar, and the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboam, and the kings of Bela, that is Zor, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sedim. So there's a lot of history to this and there's a lot that we want to deal with and we'll get there in our Genesis study. This will be years from now. This will be after the, the, through the Bible year. But as we back up though to the verse 5, these first three targets of the warfare, these are all 
Nephilim targets. These are all Rephaim, Zuzim, Emim targets for King Keterleomer. All right, Genesis 15, 20. But we don't know that yet. If all we're doing is just reading Genesis and we read, okay, Rephaim, Zuzim, Amim, don't know who they are, but okay. And we just go with it. Well, keep reading. We find out who they are. Genesis 15, 20. Again, more Rephaim. This is the promise to Abraham that after his children, our descendants, are slaves, they're going to come out of the land of slavery. He's going to give them this land, uh, but only when the iniquity of the Amorite is complete. To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Rephaim. Notice how they, they live in the midst of all these other ites. And the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. So we have all these Canaanite people groups, but then we have these Rephaim. Where do they come from? Where, where do they fit? Where do we find Rephaim in the table of nations? We don't find, that's Genesis 10, right? We don't find Rephaim in the table of nations. The first use of Rephaim is in Genesis 14, not Genesis 10. They're not mentioned in Genesis 10. But here we have them listed and they're living in the midst of these Canaanite people groups. Why are they living here? Why pick this land out? Because this is the land that God had promised to Abraham. So this is where they're going to this is where they're going to camp. All right, we get to Deuteronomy 2 and verse 11. Now here I got to back up a little bit. Deuteronomy 2 All right, so let me back up here. We turn, this, uh, Moses is reviewing their history. He's talking to the second generation about, because they were all under 20 when they walked through the Red Sea or they weren't even born yet. And so he's talking out of the second generation, reviewing the history of Israel at the Exodus and how they came out of Egypt and how faithful God was. So we turned and set out by the, for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea as the Lord spoke to me and circled Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me saying, you have circled this mountain long enough, now turn north and command the people saying, you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land, even as little as a footstep, because I have given it to Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. All right, and so this is another study that we'll have to get into in the book of Genesis. Uh, Esau is the twin brother to Israel. So Edom is the twin nation to Israel. And, and they have a land grant. Many Gentile nations. God gives, when we study Genesis 10, we're going to see 70 divisions of Gentile humanity and God is sovereign over all of them with their land grants, with their territories. Anyway, so Israel has to be careful as they pass by Edom. You shall buy food from them with money so that you, that you may eat. You may also purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. Faithful with that generation. So we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, away from Elath, away from Ez- Ezion-Geber, we turned and passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. 
And we start to get into the Moabite and Ammonite territory and now we've got a, another issue because now they're not the twin brothers but they're the descendants of Lot. So they're the nephews. They're the nephew nations to Israel. And uh, passing through the wilderness of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab nor provoke them to war for I will not give you any of their land as a possession because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. Remember Abraham is going to give Lot his choice of the land and Abraham is going to bless Lot. And so it's curious how the Moabites and the Ammonites have an extension of that Abrahamic blessing. It's like Abraham issued a subdivision of his, of his covenant land of uh, the land grant that, was, that Abraham was entitled to. Now, now we get to these notes. The Amim lived there formerly. Remember the Amim? We saw them in, in Genesis 15. The Amim, I'm sorry, we saw them in, in Genesis 14 because we had Rephaim, Amim, and Zuzim in that verse. The Amim lived there formerly, a people as great and numerous and as tall as the Anakim. Who are the Anakim? And like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim. But the Moabites call them Emim. All right. Now I know it's a lot of words we don't know. <laughs> it's a lot of terms. Thankfully they're capitalized, so we know they're people groups. Okay? They're, they're nations, they're races, they're ethnicities, or they're people groups. Um, but the uh, the point that we're making here though is we see Rephaim again like we saw in Genesis and we see that there's various classifications of Rephaim. The Emim are considered to be Rephaim. So are the Anakim. These people groups that are large, that are tall people groups. Great, that means um, the, the Giborim, that means that they're, they're great in battle, they're mighty and, and physically strong. Great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. And like the Anakim, they are regarded as Rephaim. Okay? So if you're, if you're keeping notes, if you're keeping a little score pad, just, just write out Rephaim and there's different people groups that all can be considered Rephaim. Including the Amim and including the Anakim. would be two different classifications of, of Rephaim. Further down in the chapter... It's just the Moabites that call them Emim. Then you get down to uh, verse 20, and here's the Zuzim again, called Zenzumim. It is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim, for the Rephaim formerly lived in it. But the Ammonites called them Zamzumim. Okay, so the Moabites called them Emim, the Ammonites called them Zanzumim, or Zumim. And we find that all of these divisions, they all fall under that heading of Rephaim. The Ammonites called them Zamzumim. So they all had names for them. The Hebrews had names for them, Rephaim. The, uh, the Moabites had names for them, they called them Emim. The uh, Ammonites had names for these guys, called them Zamzumim. So who are these guys? They seem to be significant. So significant even that Keterleomer comes from way off in the east where he comes and he brings five uh, or four other kings with him and they come and they wage war against these beings of might and power, against these Giborim, these, these warrior mighty beings, tall, mighty, powerful beings. And it's curious to me. 
a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them, and they settled in their place, just as he did for the sons of Esau who live in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. All right, so these are the early people groups, and we find that they're, they're giant. They're, clan, they're giant clans is what they are. They are Rephaim clans. And I'm going to show you the parallel between Rephaim and, and Nephilim here in, uh, in a moment. I think I've got the slide for that. Maybe I don't have the slide for that. But it's in Numbers 13, verse 33. When the spies go into the land, when Caleb and Joshua go into the land, and what do they find in the land? They find there's giants in the land. And God had promised them this land. And, and most of the tribes said, no, we've got to go back to Egypt. We can't conquer this land. And uh, Caleb and Joshua said, who cares if there's giants in the land? God's giving us this land. So they get, the spies give the report, and yeah, milk and honey and great things. It's a wonderful land. The problem is <laughs> the land through which we have gone and spying it out, it's a land of, that devours its inhabitants and all the peoples whom we saw in it are men of great size. There we also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And so this is the verse. When you take this verse, you say, wait a minute, these are the same Anakim that, that in Deuteronomy they were called Rephaim. In Numbers they're called Nephilim. We're dealing with different expressions for the same people groups. We're talking about giants. We're talking about the Nephilim. And when we, when we get into Genesis 6, we have the background for where Nephilim come from. How do you give birth to a Nephilim? Well, you start with an angel dad and a human mom, and here you go. And Genesis 6 talks about these not-quite-human, these, uh, these beings of might and power and uh, great stature. And so we deal with them here on this basis. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight, so we were in their sight. Okay? You have a question on that? <clears throat> we never see a female Nephilim anywhere in the Bible. We never see a female Rephaim, we never see a female uh, Emim, Zanzumim, by any term. No, we don't find any female. We don't see that either. Yeah, we don't see that. In fact, it's not clear that Nephilim can have children. Although we say that there are clans, there's clans because of the territory they occupy and how they congregate together, but they may not themselves actually procreate. which of course if we study animal crossbreeding with mules and horses and whatnot, they tend to be sterile when, when you do succeed in, in that. So maybe by analogy we understand that the Nephilim cannot procreate, we don't know. Great question though. Okay, so let's look at some more of these. So yeah, Numbers 13 was not on my slide, it needs to be. Oh, because it's, it's not a Rephaim verse. It's an Anakim Nephilim verse. Right. So take Deuteronomy 2 where the Anakim are called Nephilim and then take Numbers 13.33 where the very same Anakim, the, the sons of Anak here, the very same Anakim are also called Nephilim. And so this puts them together. The Anakim are both Nephilim and Rephaim as we understand it. 
All right, how about then Deuteronomy 3, 11 and 13. Again, recounting their uh, travels east of the river, recounting the travels through uh, beyond Edom, uh, through the regions of the Moabites and the Ammonites, and um, recounting all the, the cities they conquered, the animals they took, the booty they plundered. So we took the land at that time from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, and the Amorites call it Sinir. So all these different people groups with their different languages that recently got those languages at Babel, okay? Remember, these languages are pretty new. Uh, after the Tower of Babel, when the people groups were scattered, they were scattered with their languages. And they were starting to interact with each other, but realizing that we've got a language barrier here. <clears throat> so the Sidonians call Hermon Syrian and the Amorites call it Sinir. And all the cities of the plateau and of Gilead and all Bashan, as far as the Salakah and Edri, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All right, Og is also a giant. Og is a Nephilim. And uh, he becomes their king and uh, they're happy to have him as their king. For only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Most of them were massacred by Keter Leomer in this war, but a remnant remained, and Og was one of them. Only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of Rephaim. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead, and is in Rabbah and the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits, its width four cubits by the ordinary cubit. You don't need a bed that big if you're my size, okay? If you're normal human size, this is uh, something going on. So we took possession of this land at that time from Aror, which is by the valley of Arnon, uh, the half the hill country of Gilead and its cities I gave to the Reubenites and to the Gadites. The rest of Gilead and all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I give to the half tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob concerning all Bashan. It is called the land of Rephaim. It was known as the land of Rephaim, not to be confused with the valley of Rephaim, the valley of giants, where David did his battle with, uh, with Goliath. And so there is a remnant that remains. Joshua 12.4. Joshua 12 now. These are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated, whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon as far as Mount Hermon, all the Arabah to the east. So uh, again, in Joshua's day, they go in, they make the conquest and the various places where they conquered, uh, including east of the Jordan before they entered in, uh, that uh, two and a half tribes wanted to stay on that side of the river. And Moses said, okay, you can, but you got to cross the river with us and do the battle here. Then you can go back and have your lands over there. So, starting with Sihon, king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon and ruled from Aror, and um, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon. I should get some maps for you, but anyway, not, not important for today. Even as far as the brook Jabbok, the border of the sons of Ammon, and the Arabah is the Sea of Kinneroth toward the east, as far as the Sea of uh, Arabah, even the Salt Sea toward all oh, these are hard to pronounce. Beth Jeshimoth on the south, the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. And the territory of Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edri. 
And he ruled over Mount Hermon and uh, Salakah and all Bashan as far as the borders of the Geshurites and the Makathites. Keep in mind when, you, when you're talking about Mount Hermon you may be dealing with some angelic conflict studies there. When you're talking about Bashan you may be dealing with angelic conflict studies there. Uh, Bashan, when, when Jesus is on the cross he says many bowls of Bashan surround me. Okay, and, and you can read that in Psalm 22. So I'm not surprised that Og, king of Bashan, is um, a Rephaim is a part of this. All right, so that's Genesis 12:4, uh, Joshua 12:4, excuse me, Joshua 13:12. Again, the borders of these lands, the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Edri, he alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Okay? All alone. Well then where do the rest of them come from? How do more come back if he alone remained of that remnant? Well, because Nephilim are produced when the, the fallen angels procreate with the human women. Joshua, let's see, is there any more there? No. Joshua 17.5 17.15 Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land. If you, Who's he talking to here? All right, verse 14, the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance since I am a numerous people whom the Lord has thus far blessed? So Joshua said to them, okay, if you are a numerous people, Go up to the forest and clear a place for yourselves there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. All right. And then the last one here, where the Rephaim appear to be physical living in a land, 1 Chronicles 20 and verse 4. It came about after this that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, then Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Sippai, one of the descendants or seed of the giants, of the Rephaim, and they were subdued. We have Sibachai mentioned in this uh, battle in other places. In fact, there's a parallel here that talks, that uses the word giant instead of the word Rephaim. But it is Rephaim there. All right, so those are the embodied Rephaim. That's every verse that we have of Rephaim where it appears to be an embodied person living in this land. And they had to deal with them at the Exodus, they had to deal with them in the wilderness wanderings, they had to deal with them in Joshua's conquest. And specifically, I think it's marvelous that the two tribes that did battle, that had victory over the giants, were Caleb and, and Joshua. The two spies that were faithful uh, at, at Kadesh Barnea. And so it was, it was Joshua and the, and the uh, Ephraimites that went and destroyed the giant clans up north, and it was Caleb and, and Judah that destroyed the, the giants down south in, uh, in Hebron. Let's look at the disembodied Rephaim, starting in Job 26.5. Alright, same word, but in different contexts, in different uh, poetic passages in different 
um, if you want to call them apocalyptic, or but anyway, in different contexts, the same Rephaim is not talking about a people group living in a or a clan of giants that have to be killed. It's talking about somebody that's already killed, disembodied spirits, departed spirits, dead people, residents of Sheol. So here's another collection of verses now. Job twenty six five, the Rephaim tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke, he quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. That's Satan, that's, not, that's the dragon, that's not uh, the Jericho harlot. By his breath the heavens are cleared, his hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways, and how faint a word we hear of him, but his mighty thunder who can understand? All right, Job 26. You think this is a deep study? <laughs> are we over our heads? What are we doing here? But this is the Rephaim. Now there's not a clan of giants that's living in Canaan that the Exodus generation or Joshua has to conquer. This is not even the giants that are still around, the remnant of the giants in terms of Goliath that David has to fight or uh, that Sibachai has to fight. Okay. But where are they? They're under the waters. They're in Sheol. And the translation, departed spirits. We're going to see more and more of this. These, these Rephaim appear to be disembodied. These Rephaim appear to be in Sheol, under the dominion of Abaddon, the king of the abyss. Let's see if we have more of those. Psalm 88.10 Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the Rephaim rise and praise you? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? <laughs> you know, here's the psalm, I think it's David, Psalm 88. Um, you know, he would really like to have an answer to his prayer. Okay, it's not David, it's a psalm of the sons of Korah. A masculine of Heman the Ezraite. All right. But still, you wonder am I going to get an answer to prayer while I'm still alive, or do I have to wait until I'm dead to give you the praise and the thanksgiving for, uh, for these answers? Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? So these aren't giants, or are they? These, these appear to be disembodied Rephaim. These appear to be Rephaim that are in Sheol, that are in Abaddon, as it says. Your loving kindness will be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon. Let's look at some other disembodied uses. Proverbs 2.18. Warning the young man to stay away from the strange woman. This is what the Word of God will do, wisdom from God's Word to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. 
for her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the Rephaim. None who go to her return again, nor do they teach, nor do they reach the paths of life. So again, we have the realm of the dead. We have the realm of the departed spirits. The realm of, of uh, it's not, a, not where you want to end up, okay? When you leave your physical body. Proverbs 9, 18. And this is again the seductress and she's uh, leading him astray. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. Let him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Oh, come on, this is the best sex you'll ever have. You know, and it's, it's uh, sin is fun and all the enticements of all the things. But she does not know, he does not know that the Rephaim are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. 21.16, where we are this morning. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the Kahal Rephaim, the church of the dead, the assembly of the dead. Isaiah 14.9, i got to go quickly, goodness. Isaiah 14. What do we think about Isaiah 14? Five I wills? The fall of Satan? Hmm. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. Can't wait for you to get here. It arouses for you the Rephaim, all the great men, the great warriors of the earth, the leaders of the earth. Some other vocabulary studies there demonic studies. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. O Lucifer, O Hillel ben Shachar. This is the welcome committee for Satan when Satan is cast into the abyss. And part of that welcome committee are these Rephaim, the spirits of the dead, the leaders of the earth. Finally, Isaiah 26, 14 and 19. The dead will not live, the Rephaim will not rise, therefore you have punished and destroyed them and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. This is a second Advent passage, by the way. Your dead will live, your, their corpses will rise, you who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy. Because remember, Israel's promised a resurrection. There will be dry bones that come together. The, the nation of Israel will be resurrected and all believers will be resurrected to, to enter into the millennial glory. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the Rephaim, the departed spirits. All right, so we have um, context whereby these Rephaim are physical beings. 
and they're of great size, they're giants. We have other contexts where the Rephaim are, are disembodied and they reside in Sheol. We have, and so why do we have, why those two realms? The huge giants versus the disembodied spirits. Why use the same word for both groups? Unless the same word is appropriately used for both groups. Because what happens to a giant when it dies? What happens when you kill a giant? What happens to the immaterial part of that giant? See, this is what I want you to chew on in a matter of time. But when we, um, when we deal with, of course, when a human dies, your soul departs your body. And if you're a believer, you're going to heaven. If you're an unbeliever, you're going to hell. Well, what happens if you kill a giant? What kind of soul does a giant have anyway? He doesn't have a human father. The giant, the Nephilim, is not in Adam. The, def, the, the Nephilim has a human mother. But uh, what do we learn when we talk about the sins of the father, when we talk about who passes on the sin nature? Who passes on that component? Remember, Jesus was virgin born and did not have the sin nature of Joseph. He didn't have any genetics from Joseph. And so if you kill a giant, when, when Goliath died, when, when David chopped off Goliath's head, what did the, the soul of Goliath go? What kind of soul did he have anyway? What does it, where does any Nephilim go? They become the departed spirits. They, become, they, they, still, they stay Rephaim, they just happen to be Rephaim without bodies. <laughs> if they're giants, then they're Rephaim with bodies. And they're giant bodies. When they're dead, then they're still Rephaim it just, they don't have bodies anymore. They're dead bodies. See? Which is why they crave to be re-embodied. They crave to, uh, to infest humans or animals if they have to. Anything with a, with, a, with, a, with, with a warm, bloody body. See? All right. Well, resting in the assembly of the dead. There's a lot more there, but I think this is all we're going to do with it. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. You've given us things to chew on, things to think about, things to pray over. And uh, all in all, Father, I pray that we learn these lessons sooner rather than later because we are church-age believer priests that are called to the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And uh, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle with the principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, so these kind of studies are exactly what we need, Father. We need to have our eyes open to the angelic reality that underlies the, uh, the situation all around us. Otherwise, Father, we get confused. We, we get sidetracked. We start getting wrapped up in, in uh, human beings like Trump or Biden. We get wrapped up in human beings or, or uh, Republicans and Democrats or voting machines or who knows what we get wrapped up in, Father. Our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So I pray that we have our armor on and that we have our eyes open and that we stand for truth. That we uh, defend truth every time the satanic lie um, is, is voiced in our hearing. And so Father I just thank you for being faithful. I thank you for these studies and I thank you for a flock of uh, brothers and sisters that study to show themselves approved. They're not, uh, they didn't pick out a church to be entertained or have their ears tickled. Uh, but Father... Uh, they're hungry for truth. And I thank you for the truth you feed us with. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.